Hi, friends. Welcome to the Lady Preacher podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey. And as always, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate that you let me talk into your ear every week. It's a very humbling thing. And I'm so grateful that you all keep coming back. We actually had a major milestone during the month of June. We got the most downloads we ever have had in a single month, which is 4,000, which feels so exciting to me. And it's all because of you all. So thank you for listening and for tuning in. Um, Be sure to let us know if there are things that you want to hear about, if there are guests you'd love for us to have on. We're always looking for your suggestions and are so grateful for them. Today we have on a great guest who's here to talk about everybody's favorite topic, money. (laughs) I'm being facetious. Hopefully you know that. We have on Dr. Cheryl Johnson, who is a visiting faculty lecturer at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary, which fun fact is where I met my spouse. Um, She is also a minister at the Congregational Church of San Mateo. She completed her PhD in economic ethics at Graduate Theological Union in 2020 and is the author of a new book, Serving Money, Serving God, Aligning Radical Justice, Christian Practice, and Church Life. And she is here today to talk to us about that book and just in general about the connecting points between our finances and our faith, both on individual levels and communal levels, church levels, systemic levels. It was such a fun conversation to sit down with her and just hear and talk more about these really hard topics. I feel like when we talk about finances, there's a lot of vulnerability involved. And I'm so grateful for Reverend Dr. Cheryl for being here this week. And I hope that you all get so much out of this conversation because I know I did. Before we dive in, my friends, let's say a prayer together. God of all creation, we are so thankful for another day. We're so grateful for your faithfulness with us in every single season. God, some of us are experiencing financial hardship. Some are experiencing financial abundance. And some of us are somewhere in the middle of that. And God, wherever we are with it, it seems to always be complicated. Help us to look for your guidance and your grace. Help us to admit when we're struggling and to offer help when we're not. Give us grace and compassion and lead us always with a spirit of love. God, I ask that you open our hearts and our minds and fill our well with your everlasting love and life. We pray in the name of your grace. Amen. Okay, my friends, here is Reverend Dr. Cheryl Johnson. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to Lady Preacher. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So before we dive into anything else, tell us about who you are. What do you love? What do you like to do? Tell us about yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So I identify as a white settler. I grew up in Canada, what is, you know, colonially known as Canada. And um, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't say my family was super active in church, but for me, Mm -hmm. church has really been a great space to, um, yeah, to be my own space of of learning about uh, the intersections of faith and justice and 
Um, yeah, so I think for me, I've um, yeah been been very involved in my home denomination, the United Church of Canada, and then um, in 2016 came to the U.S. to um, do a PhD at um, Graduate Theological Union. And so, um, yeah, I've had a great, um, great experience just seeing a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences in this context as well. And um, yeah, so I guess um, right now I'm uh, serving in a church and then I also teach uh, ethics at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary. Mm, ethics, that is a, a robust <laughs> venture. What I'm curious for you, what is it that draws you to, to ethics? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think for me, it's partially just the, the complexity of it. And I really love questions that don't have easy answers. And within ethics, the sort of stream that I'm most involved in is the stream called social ethics, which is a little bit different than, you know, I think often when people think about ethics, they think about really individual choices and what is moral and what is right. And, you know, I think that those are those are important questions. But I think for me, I, I really like taking those quandaries and looking at at systems and looking at privilege and power and, you know, institutions and structures and how do those, um, you know, shape and form and, and also malform us in certain ways and how can we, um, by making a more just society, hopefully help to empower and enable people on an individual level as well to um, live in better ways. So I think for me, I love the all the gray areas, all of the, um, you know, just uncertainty of it, the fact that there's never, you know, so rarely is there a perfect answer, but it, I think it makes it more interesting to say, well, given these constraints, you know, what is the, the better option? So I, yeah, I love ethics. Absolutely. Well, and I imagine it played into your new book. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. So yeah, my book is called Serving Money, Serving God, Aligning Radical Justice, uh, Christian Practice and Church Life. And so yeah, for me, when I was, I kind of knew that I, when I was in seminary, I just really loved ethics. And, you know, those were my favorite classes and my favorite people. But when I was thinking about, you know, going back to school to do a PhD, it really was hard for me to really figure out like, what is the main issue that I want to look at? Because for me, it's, you know, it's all connected. They're all really important issues, but it didn't really feel like like I had an, an immediate answer coming to the fore. But, you know, as I took um, some time to reflect um, and worked for an ecumenical social justice organization and worked in a church, um, one of the issues that really kept coming up for me is how um, progressive churches um, tend to have a lot of great statements about um, different societal issues and, and really do a good job of preaching and teaching on those issues. But, um, you know, especially when I reflected on, you know, church practices, practices that I was involved in, practices that I sort of saw um, you know, emerging, especially as churches go through decline, I really thought, you know, it doesn't seem like the things that we really say are our ethical commitments around money and around racial justice and, and all of these really important issues. It doesn't really seem like those are informing all of our church practices. When I look at church practices, I really see a lot of just sort of uncritical um, borrowing of, um, you know, conventional fundraising strategies or um, budgeting priorities and practices and, and really thought, wow, you know, that I, I sense this just connect within me. And I, you know, when talking to others, felt like other people said that too. So I thought, well, maybe that's my, that's my inroads. So one of the things that I did as part of my dissertation is I did a, a review of all of the books written about church finance by sort of mainline or progressive 
uh, off church affiliated authors. And um, in that really realized that not a, there are very, very few that really seem to bring that justice perspective to the core, to the fore. So I guess for me, I thought, well, maybe this is um, maybe this is a book that I could write. Um, and maybe this is um, a way that I could help to mend that divide between the great commitments to justice, but then on the other hand, um, church practices. Absolutely. And what is your hope for like the average church person who reads this book? What's your hope that they'll really glean from it? Yeah, I think my hope is that people, um, I think that sometimes we think about church finance just as kind of administration, administrative or something that's not um, particularly, you know, central to, to faith. But I hope that people in, in reading the book will get excited about the possibilities because I think it really can be such a um, exciting witness to alternative values when churches do things that are by conventional standards, um, you know, really unusual with their money. If they um, really make bold choices to prioritize things um, that society often doesn't value, um, if they, you know, really lift up um, the marginalized or if they're willing to take risks for what they believe in, I think that those things are really compelling. And I think they can have an immediate effect on, on people in the community, um, in the church community, in the wider community. But I think there's also a really powerful, um, you know, just story that we can tell. And I think that's really exciting to people, um, even outside of the church, when um, we have those examples of people really being um, willing to, to do bold things because of what they believe in with their, with their money. Absolutely. Do you have an example of a of a church that has done that, that has been really bold in their financing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of examples I can share. I think, I mean, in reflecting on my own story growing up, I think one of the most, you know, exciting things about my own denomination that I remember hearing about was um, that in the 1980s, um, there was you know, growing awareness on the part of um, settlers, white settler folks that um, that there needed to be an apology made for the church involved church's involvement in indigenous residential schools, or in the US are more commonly called Indian boarding schools where, um, you know, children were forcibly taken away from their families and suffered horrific abuses on a personal level, as well as a societal um, level in terms of loss of language and culture and spirituality and, and just really horrific things. And um, as these discussions were happening about an apology, um, you know, I, I heard that one of the concerns that was raised was that, you know, this could bankrupt the church. This could open, if the church apologized, this could open them up to all sorts of, of lawsuits and, um, you know, potential um, really, you know, really, really challenging things. And the fact that the church chose to apologize um, regardless, uh, despite that, and that that apology was one of the, you know, early apologies that led to other churches apologizing to the government, um, eventually offering apology to the whole truth and reconciliation process to really see, um, yeah, that denomination being willing to, you know, it's, it's not enough, obviously, that doesn't take away the harm that happened, but the fact that they were willing to take a risk um, because of that belief. For me, that was, you know, as a teenager hearing that story, I think um, helped to um, bring me into the church and, and to say, you know, this is a space where, um, where I see that that um, those values being lived into. So I think that's kind of a denominational level, but there's also, yeah, there's also congregations too, I think who are doing really creative things, um, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, whether or not they, they need to have a building, whether or not they need to, um, you know, kind of prolong their existence as long as possible, 
or whether it can be a more prophetic choice to say, you know, let's combine our resources, let's close maybe before we would have to so that we could, um, you know, do something new or, or give away our funds or or become a, a renter in our in our church building rather than an, an owner by saying, like, let's give this over to a community organization and, and just become a, a tenant so that um, our, our building can better serve the community and also that we can not be putting so much of our, our budget and our time and in our effort in, in towards the church. So yeah, there's all sorts of, all sorts of examples. Yeah. I wonder too, it makes me think about churches who have made a commitment, like to wipe away medical debt. Like we're mm -hmm. going to take our funds and see who has medical debt and we're going to wipe it away. And I've seen that happen a few times here in the U S that churches have made that commitment. And it's amazing the, the liberation and freedom that that brings to people. Totally. I know. I think that's such a great example. And one of the other examples about that in the book that I write about, um, there's a church um, in the Philadelphia area where they brought together people with um, uh, credit card debt in small groups, and they worked together to pay off one another's debt, um, starting with whoever's interest rate was the highest and, and aided with seed funds from the larger church. And so, yeah, I think there's also so much that we can do um, around, yeah, alleviating debt or um, just kind of combining our, our resources around money to be able to do powerful things, um, I think it's it's just so important. And, and, you know, I think when I reflect on the prayers of the people that I often hear in churches, at least the churches I've been a part of, I think we, you know, we hear a lot about people's health concerns, you know, but I, but I think that a lot of times people feel like they're alone in their, in their financial stress. Um, and I think that we talk, you know, in a big picture way about, you know, why our, our economy is, is unjust in different ways, but also, you know, how do we allow, how do we also, you know, and, and at the same point, we don't, not that we shouldn't do that prophetic work in terms of social transformation, but how do we also kind of living into that vision in a community way and being a foretaste of that broader vision for and with one another too. So I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot of potential for linking both work for systemic change, as well as, um, you know, bold experiments on a really local level as well. Mm -hmm. I love that you bring up the prayers of the people because I think naming that we so openly talk about our, our health related prayers, we so rarely lift up those prayers of financial stress. I had never thought about it. I mean, I like obviously have that awareness, but you know, I don't know that I've ever heard someone lift up a prayer saying, I'm really struggling to pay my monthly bills. Like, I know there are people who are struggling to pay their monthly bills, but I haven't heard anyone ever be willing to say that loud because there's shame attached to it and how much it's living the gospel would be to help those, those people who are struggling in that way. Totally, totally. And I think it's even even people who do have enough, there's still really difficult money decisions that they face too. As you know, I think that often in Christian stewardship, we just say, just give, you know, to the church, but we don't really help people think through, you know, when they're like, well, you know, I, I want to save for my grandchildren and, and support them because I really see the rising cost of education. And I don't know how long I'm going to live and what kind of needs they may have in the future. And also there are all these organizations out there that are doing really, you know, good life-saving work. And how do I decide how much to give to these different, you know, places or how much, you know, how do I kind of grapple with some of the, the just, you know, ethical decisions about all sorts of, of money related things that we, we all face every day. And I think that because that's so much on my mind, I, I know it's on a lot of people's minds. I think that, you know, I think bringing that out in the open is, it's just so powerful so that, yeah, like you said, that folks don't feel quite so alone, I hope. And then, you know, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of people in church that are like, well, if I knew that someone was struggling, I would help. But, you know, if we don't know that folks are struggling, then how can we even, you know, begin to, to help them out in, in different ways? So, 
Yeah. And to create space where people feel safe enough to, to name those fears and concerns. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it really kind of does folks a disservice when all we say about money is like, you know, give to the church. Well, if people feel like, well, I don't trust that anyone would help me out if I got into a situation of need, you know, I I don't think it's really fair to just say like, well, just have faith, you know, just give away your money um, without saying, well, but we'll be here for you if if you kind of, you know, come into a time of, of, of need, because otherwise, you know, I think in our society, people are very much on their own and they know that there's very little social safety net and they know that, um, you know, are the way that our world is structured, people really, you know, unfortunately are very much on their own when it comes to their financial needs. So, um, yeah, I think that we need to, you know, do things, do both things and say, you know, yes, we want to contribute to this wider project, but also we're going to be there for one another um, in our, in whatever need we may have. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about scarcity versus abundance? I feel like that plays such a huge role in this giving piece. And you kind of name it too, when you're like, you know, when we talk about giving, we don't talk about the flip side of that, of we'll be here for you. So those are kind of two connected things, but also separate. So yeah, no, I love that question. And I think, yeah, that's a theme that comes up in so many books about, um, stewardship and money. And and I think that for me, um, I think we need to name that scarcity is real. You know, I think that a lot of times people just say like, you know, if you have faith and you'll believe in abundance, um, you know, just act as if um, abundant exists and, and don't be afraid. And, and if you are afraid, that's a sign of, of your lack of faith. And to me, that's such a problematic theology because, yeah. you know, as I said, you know, people do experience um, scarcity in our world. So for me, I think that um, you know, I do, I do really want us to not be, you know, um, I think that churches can get into a scarcity mindset that can be problematic by saying, oh, we don't want to, you know, take any risks. But I think, you know, first part of it is also kind of changing the metrics of success. So if we're not necessarily saying that, you know, success is defined by existing, having the largest budget possible or existing forever, then that can also sometimes change um, some of our, our fears of scarcity. But at the same time, I think on a personal level to say, you know, how can we make sure that we're not just telling people. I think in progressive church, we're really good at saying, you know, our faith needs to be put into action. But I think when it comes to abundance, we need to do just the same thing. You know, how do we put that abundance into action? Well, we do that by saying that we're going to, you know, be be there for one another when it comes to situations of financial need. We're going to have sliding scales. We're going to be there to... Um, support people if, if they ex- are experiencing debt, that we are going to, abundance is not just something we kind of manifest in our minds, but abundance is something that we can actively create by creating the material conditions for, for abundance in communities so that people can have that confidence and say, I'm going to, you know, give really abundantly to the church, or I'm going to, you know, you know, give, um, you give my time really abundantly by um, you know, choosing a, a different career path that aligns with my values more deeply. I think that 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 abundance is something that um, that we need to put into action and, and really create the the circumstances where people can can thrive. Yeah, as you were talking, it it made me realize there's a space for both and right. I think, yeah. like you said, in a lot of those stewardship books that exist, it's we can't have any scarcity, only abundance. And you're saying. We need to name that scarcity is is real, particularly on an individual level um, that's systemic in our in our yeah. culture. Um, but that churches can function within that abundance. Mm-hmm. If they name the scarcity for the individual and then live into that abundance of saying, we've got you. Um, which I think that's a really beautiful 
yeah, really beautiful both and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way you frame that. And I think, yeah, to just be rooted in reality and not just say like, you know, that we're going to just create this narrative, right? Because I think the narratives can mislead us and, and it kind of lead us to, and I think to really look at, you know, why, you know, due to maybe race or due to living through the depression or to all of these systemic factors, we may have these tendencies towards, you know, either an overly kind of excessive, abundant capitalist kind of mentality or a, a really scarce fearful space. And not to say that I think that we need to look at those, you know, those reasons why people have those kind of money scripts um, as individuals and also as communities and not to just discount that and say, well, God, it promises abundance. So stop being afraid. Yeah. Which is gaslighting. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Thank you. you. Very well said. I'm curious for you, are there parts of scripture that you really lean on for your understanding of money and justice. I mean, your title, serving God and serving money is a clear reference to that part of scripture. But yeah, what are what are some verses for you that you really pull on for guidance here? Mm, Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think for me, probably it's a stereotypical favorite, but but it is a favorite of the the act story of the earliest Christian community, you know, kind of coming together. And one of the very, very first witnesses to the life of Jesus was people coming together and sharing their resources. I think that's really powerful, you know, that, that having had that experience of, of being with Jesus, that people were led to pooling the resources that they had, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of anyone who had need. And I think that that's just such a powerful, powerful story that has animated all sorts of different experiments um, throughout time. I, um, growing up, I was involved in an organization called the Student Christian Movement, and there were um, these older folks who had been involved in the in the organization in the 1940s and 50s, and there were these great um, work camps that were really modeled on that very same scripture passage where all of these, you know, more kind of upper class folks who got to attend university in the summertime, they would work in different industries, they would, you know, go work in a factory or go work, um, you know, alongside folks in, in, you know, in spaces that they perhaps had never encountered. And, you know, they would pool all of their earnings at the end of the summer. They would look at, you know, who needs money for school, who doesn't need it because they're going on to a different job. And they would pool their resources and and also, you know, learn about labor justice and stand alongside the the people they were working with and um, help to, you know, make sure that they were also... um, you know, getting to to share share in in what was needed for those folks as well. So I think that for me, that's like a really powerful scripture because not only because of what is in the Bible, because, you know, we don't know exactly to what extent that was lived into, but I know that throughout time, it has really been manifest in different communities practices in terms of, you know, and I think it just really flips such an important capitalist myth of like, well, you did this work, therefore this is what you earn versus saying, no, we're going to start with what, what do people need? And that's the most important um, determining factor for what they get, not what they, you know, personally um, seem to, you know, through merit or through um, their own effort have, have gained. That's not the most, that's not important, as important as, um, yeah, what 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 does a person need? And so I think that's probably, probably my favorite if I had to pick a scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even as you talk about that, it makes me think of the, the parable of, um, the laborers when, in the vineyard. Yes, yeah, the laborers in the vineyard. Um, and everyone gets the same amount, but almost flipping that on its head a little bit, and it's not everyone gets the same amount, but everyone gets what they need. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's a great scripture that really has that same message too, right? That 
there are all sorts of different reasons why some of us, you know, might be doing one sort of work or not be able to access that work. And, and yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, the thing that, that matters most is that people have their needs met. So I think that um, that parable really does a great job of, of outlining that and, and also sort of naming that, yeah, it, it is countercultural. There are going to be people who say, well, you know, I, I worked harder, but, um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think that that also for those of us who, who have more than we need, I think that's such an important message to say, like, don't, don't complain. If you have your needs met, um, that should be, you know, and if others are having their needs met too, that should be our priority. Mm-hmm. I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying about the United Church of Canada and seeing them kind of put their money where their mouth is, right. And, and lean into that justice oriented risk-taking on behalf of the gospels, how I think I would phrase that Mm -hmm. and how you said it for you as a young person, that's what drew you into church. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because I feel like so often we hear in churches, like, where are the young people? The young people aren't here. And I think you just named something really important, which is young people want to see churches that are making a difference. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely, completely. And I think also, you know, studies really back that up too. I mean, one of the, you know, the Pew Research Center has done some work looking at why people, you know, move away from church and and leave churches. And one of the reasons is, you know, a sense of churches that operate too much like businesses or a sense of hypocrisy. And I think that's really, really true. I think a lot of people, you know, and this is true of people I know, and I don't know, maybe it's true of people you know too, they say, well, you know, I love everything that the church preaches and teaches, but, you know, when I I show up, um, I don't really see those values being lived into. Um, I just see people kind of, you know, largely living their lives as they, as they would otherwise. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think there's a huge, huge possibility there. And not to say that everyone's going to, you know, everyone should be Christian. I definitely don't believe that. But I think that, you know, when people who who do have an interest in in, in faith and, and are really excited about the teachings, when they don't see them lived into, I think that they were really missing out on a huge opportunity. And um, yeah, I think that there's so much potential there by, you know, I think it's, it, again, to come back to scripture, I think it's this idea of like, if we try to save our lives, or if we try to save our churches, we'll end up losing them. But if we try to, you know, not try to save them, just try to live into the gospel and not really care what the outcome is going to be, that we might find some new life in unexpected ways by um, really just changing what, what we're trying to do. Hmm. What would you say for the individual person who is listening to this, who's wondering how they can be more just in, in their stewardship and in their finances? What would you say on the more individualistic level? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that on a more individual level, I would just say, um, you know, try not to be be alone in, in whatever you're, you're doing. Uh, the Iona community in Scotland has a great practice of people coming together in small groups, um, you know, periodically to check in about and, you know, sort of check in with one another about their use of money, about their use of time, about their sense of vocations during in their lives. And so I think for individuals, I think that's a great practice, you know, find that community of, of folks where you can say, you know, we're going to check in with each other, um, you know, once a year or or even more frequently and, and just kind of look, you know, okay, these are the things that I, I really say that I value. But when I look at my use of time, I look at my use of money, here's what I see. And not to say, you know, we, we live in, in a broken system and broken world and, and not to say it's all in the individual to make that alignment perfect. But on the other hand, I think that by working together in community, we can help to move, move more towards the things that we value and goal and our goals. And also we can support one another too. And I think for, for individuals who are listening right now, who are 
maybe, you know, have some, some financial stress or feel really alone um, in, in the, in the challenges that they're facing, I would say, you know, you don't have to be alone. I think that, um, God promises us that we are not alone. And I think that we can, we can find those spaces where people, um, people will support us. People will, um, will come alongside us in whatever we're facing. So I would really say if you're, if you're feeling stressed, um, if you're feeling uncertain, um, I, as much as you can open up that I think that sometimes by, by us sort of opening up with what's real for us, other people often, you know, will, will mirror that and say, actually, I'm, I'm struggling too, or I've been there. And I think one of the great things about churches is it can be, and it should be a space where we have people at all different, you know, stages of life and all different economic circumstances coming together. And often we're more homogenous than we should be, but also, you know, sometimes in churches, when we kind of come together, we might find, you know, um, for like for on a personal level, you know, I lived um, when I was in my twenties and I lived with a woman in her eighties who, you know, had space in her house and was able to offer, um, you know, a really affordable place for me to live that I think, you know, I think also probably, I hope at least offered her um, some companionship and, and some support as well. So I think that, you know, when we come together in churches or we come in together in other spaces where maybe some people have, have more resources, maybe some people have leads on work, you know, when we kind of pool all of not only our resources, but also our, our connections and our expertise and our backgrounds, I think it can be really amazing to see the, the possibility for connections and mutual support. And it feels to me almost countercultural to do that, that it asks us to be communal and it asks us to be vulnerable. Like I can imagine when you said it, I was like, oh, could I like have my church get together and do a like time and money audit of ourselves individually in small groups? And I was like, I would get so much pushback. Like, I'm not going to share my finance. Like, I'm not going to, you know, we get so, um, I was going to say defensive, but I don't think that's the right word. I think it's protective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we feel very protective around that. And that's a, that's a big ask. It's a vulnerable thing, but we know that now we know now that vulnerability is what leads to deeper connection. Definitely. And also, you know, what leads to greater justice as well. You know, I think there's really a reason why in labor unions, one of the, the important practices is having more transparency. And if we don't know what other people are making, how can we, you know, intervene if it's if it's unjust? And I think that the more that we can, you know, I, I think that, you know, bring it out into the light. I think, yeah, you're so right. We can um, connect with others more deeply, but also we can sort of hold up to, to um, the need for change, um, whatever situations people, you know, might be on a need, need to have more solidarity on a more systemic level as well. What work do you feel like churches need to do to lean into the social justice aspect of financial justice? That's a great question. I mean, I think that there's, uh, I think there's a lot of work of, of kind of really rooting ourselves in, in faith in terms of thinking about like, I think that sometimes we just have these assumptions that the, the role of a, of a treasurer or of a, um, you know, steward is to preserve the institution. But I think the more we can root ourselves in our faith and really remember, oh, actually, you know, this is just the vehicle. This is just the church is just a tool. It's just a vehicle. It's not meant to be here forever. The more that we can root ourselves, um, in in actually the story and actually the call and that can you know come from scripture it can also come from looking at examples of other communities other churches that have done really creative things and so when we kind of shift the metric I think of what we're trying to do 
I think that that can really help us to lead, live into our justice commitments more fully. Because I think so often people say, well, you know, that sounds really great, but we have to pay our bills, but we have to, you know, keep this going. But I, I would say, do we have to, you know, if if that's really a burden that's not that's not really working out? If I mean, not to say that church buildings are always a burden. Sometimes they can be a great vehicle for serving the community. But um, but if we really root ourselves in what are we the question of what are we actually called to do? What actually um, you know, what actually does success mean for us? I think that sometimes a lot of other concerns um, start to fall into the background a little bit more. So I think that that's probably, it's easier said than done for sure, but I would say that's probably step one. I feel like as I've been listening to you, there's so much about the church building, right? That I think when I think about that phrase from scripture, you can't serve God and money, I feel like you could also adjust that phrase to say you can't serve God and serve the building, you know, that we put so much emphasis on the building when really church is less about the building and more about the people we're serving and the community we're serving. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, for sometimes it becomes too trending to say, oh, we should just, you know, get rid of buildings entirely. And, and I think there's also, you know, important questions to ask, like, you know, for instance, if we, if we don't have a building, sometimes that can fuel gentrification by, you know, selling yes. church buildings fuels gentrification in a neighborhood. It can, you know, all of the groups that really rely on, on church buildings, like, you know, support groups and all of that. Sometimes, you know, we want to think about really intentionally about those choices um, and really know that having, you know, affordable non-commercial public space is semi-public space at least is really important to communities but at the same time yeah is that the ultimate thing is that the ultimate goal um no not at all and in some communities maybe there's a lot of other space that's already available maybe there's a lot of you know maybe that's not a particular need in a particular community and and maybe there is you know that that could be a, a huge a huge gift you know to as a form of of reparations to potentially gift a you know give away a building or as a form of, you know, environmental commitment um, to move uh, away from, from property um, or to, you know, to say that this building's going to stay here, but we're going to move from a, a position of being an owner to just being a tenant that will make us a little bit more nimble on our feet and we'll hand over the ownership to, to the broader community better. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities there. So I think you're so right to say that, yeah, that's often one of the biggest expenses in churches and, and also one that we need to not just assume you can't be a church without. So... Yeah. Well, and I think too, you could also ask the question, getting into more of the gray area of how can we allow the building to serve the community and serve God? You know, how can we, like you've mentioned, there are churches who have opened their buildings up to different social services, um, counselors using office space, you know, all sorts of different ways that I think we can, especially for smaller churches who don't have huge budgets, you know, how can how can we use the building to be of service, Definitely. which I think can can be powerful? Definitely. Definitely. And I think, yeah, sometimes the best like testament to our faith, to our community can be, you know, the list of the organizations that meet in our building, you know, and I think that can be a huge testament to the things that we value, especially, you know, if we are really intentional about the the rent that we're charging, we don't just simply say, okay, let's, you know, try to extract as much as we can from these different organizations. If we really say, you know, what's a, what's fair for these different um, folks to pay and and how do we invite them into a relationship that's deeper than simply, you know, kind of, um, a tenant landlord one. Um, yeah, I think it can be really, really cool and really a great possibility to have a, a neighborhood hub. 
My favorite question that I've been asking people lately is in the work that you're doing, what are you learning? What are you still learning? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think for me, I'm, I'm really still learning, um, you know, how, where, where does this problem come from? You know, how, how is it that we've gotten caught up in some of the systems that we are? So I think for me, I'm, I'm still learning how, um, just the intersection of, of things like, you know, capitalism and also white supremacy and how do those, you know, function together? Because I think that um, this conversation is, is, it's different in, in different communities and with different histories. And so, um, you know, how do, um, how do we, those of us who are white, do the work that's important for us to do, but at the same time to say that there's, you know, very different realities and very different answers um, in different cultural contexts as well. So I think that looking at those those intersections of all of the systems that form and, and malform us um, in, in all sorts of ways, I think that that's kind of an area that I'm really interested in. And I'm really excited to talk to colleagues who have, um, you know, just really different relationships to their church buildings because of those different cultural contexts. I think that's also really important to, to be in dialogue and say, you know, what, what's important for, for one community, for especially privileged folks, is not necessarily going to be the same for, for others. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Okay. All right. Finish the sentence. God is. Love. Favorite verse or story in the Bible today? Hmm. going to stay with Acts 2 for today. What are you currently reading? Yeah, right now I am reading, rereading uh, David Graeber's uh, book about debt. It's a fantastic book. And if you're really, yeah, want to learn more about um, how, yeah, how we have come to understand debt in, in our present economic, but also theological uh, context, highly recommend that. Hmm. Okay. We'll have to try to remember to link that in the show notes for folks. Um, okay. Taking a, a bit of a hard right, if you could share a last supper with your closest friends, what would be on the menu? What would be served? I think it would be a potluck. I think it need mm. to have a little bit of a little bit of everyone's dishes all kind of mingling together on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, what do you love about Jesus? Hmm. I love I love the complexity of him. I feel like you can't pin him down um, into one one kind of message or one kind of approach or, or ever be certain about the question, what would Jesus do? I, I love the, yeah, just the messiness of it. Yeah. What do you know for sure? Um, I know for sure that, um, that we're meant for community that we're built mm. for. Um, we're not, you know, no, no person is an Island. We're built for um, relationship. Yeah. And final question, Cheryl, what is filling your well right now? I love summer. I think that it's just such a great season for getting a little bit, um, getting a little bit of perspective from the rhythm of, you know, the, the year. And I think it's a really, just a great season, I think for, for a little bit more lightheartedness and Sabbath and, um, just kind of getting a little bit out of the, the daily kind of schedule and, and a chance to reset a little bit. Mm. Well, thank you so much for this conversation today and for, jumping on for our listeners. I put an ask out like, I don't know, three days ago saying, can somebody jump on with me? Um, so I appreciate you doing this and, um, we're so grateful for your work and the book that you wrote, and we'll be sure to link all that. Is there a spot where people can find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, definitely. So I have um, kind of a like a professional website and I can certainly share that with folks. Um, but yeah, really excited to yeah, to talk more and, and to really connect if anyone ever wants to reach out. Really happy to have a conversation. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.